Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. It is Saturday, April 6, 507, here on the East Coast. I'm your host, Jake, and thank you for joining us. With me, as always, is the host, uh, he's the co-host and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? I'm doing pretty well. I think we have some interesting topics to talk about tonight, plus a pretty good interview with Daniel Waterman. I agree. Entheogen Society and Law, and which uh, I listened to again this week, and I thought it was just a fascinating interview. I wish we could have done more, but um, we'll hear that later on in the show. And I thought it was a very uh, interesting interview, so that'll be fun. And yeah, that, that'll be for about the last half hour or so. So, But first, we have some housekeeping that we have to get to um, before we go into anything else. So, uh, James, you want to talk a little, a, a little about the uh, Dose Nation blog? Yeah, I had a previous Dose Nation reader uh, write in and ask what was going on with the blog. Up till about a year and a half ago, I think, we were running daily news at the blog, or at least weekly news, covering news stories and clipping stories and writing commentary and occasionally releasing new articles and new essays, plus running videos and music, etc., etc. Well, we kind of, we ran out of steam doing that after a while. It became too much of a daily burden uh, for all of the editors, and it sort of just petered out. We came back online in January as a podcast with the with the hope of keeping up the blog, but we really haven't kept up the blog. We've just been focusing on the podcast, and really, all of the news linking to things like videos and music and news stories that we like is pretty much happening on our Facebook page now. So I would encourage people who enjoyed the blog in the previous form to check out the Facebook page uh, every couple days to see what's new there. Plus, you can check out the uh, news page on our site. It's still running a news feed from a clip from sources around the Internet. And uh, look at our books. And you can always send us questions, and we can, uh, we'll respond to you. Uh, yeah. That's questions at dosenation.com, and uh, we will respond to you personally yes. at that email address. So... Uh, the that's other- that's what's going on with the blog, and it's you know it may come back if we find people if we find editors interested in keeping it up on a daily basis. But myself personally, I can't spend as much time on the keyboard as I used to. It's just a physical thing with my hands, and sitting in front of a microphone once a week is is a lot easier than than uh, you know keeping up with the news every day and and writing blog posts. So that's that's where I am right now. And I just wanted to, to clarify that and let people know. And uh, I'm the n- new addition, I should say, to the to the Yeah, Jake Dose is the Nation new addition, and he's the one who basically talked me into podcasting. I said, <laughs> I don't really want to do the blog. And he was like, hey, you don't need to do the blog. We could just do a podcast. And I was like, well, okay, that sounds that sounds like something I could do. And the other thing I want to mention is that if there uh, is more interest um, – in the Facebook page and things like that, and people are interested in seeing more um, posted there, uh, you know, uh, send in that suggestion, and, um, you know, uh, we can try to, or at least I will try to to do more with it, so, on a a daily um, basis. When we were... When we first started Dose Nation, Facebook hadn't really become a thing yet. So having a place where somebody was posting daily links to news was still the thing. I mean, blogging was still a new thing. But then when Facebook came into its own, there's there's like maybe, you know, 50 different walls that have psychedelic news on them. Right. now that people can find it it's not as hard to find it now in fact psychedelic news when we started dose nation was very few few articles you know few and far between with from you know kind of fringy news sources like the san jose mercury news or the guardian in the uk now it's very mainstream 
you know, the Huffington Post will carry a psychedelic story once a week or once every two weeks. The New York Times will carry a psychedelic story, you know. Major outlets have caught on to this now, and it's not just about psychedelic research. It's about research chemicals or synthetic marijuana, and really, it's it's not underground news anymore. It's part of mainstream news. Covering all of that on a daily basis is just it's you know i can't it can't be my job anymore so nor can it be mine unfortunately right it's it's too it's too much so and and you can find that information in other places so but you know i mean i i have if if there is enough interest i have no problem linking into the facebook or something like that different kinds of articles that people can read and you know look at and pictures and things like that but you know as i said if there is enough interest for that that's something i you know um i know that i could do and james of course you would contribute to right and, and i like that would be fine i'd like to reserve the blog for more um original postings like if we have right. original news to report or a review of a particularly good book that we want to put up there or a written interview as opposed to an audio interview uh, those would go up on the blog right you know? and you know facebook as opposed to just be... you know spamming the wall with right. links to random news stories or videos that may or may not be relevant so that's that's kind of where where we're at that's the editorial thought process at the moment so uh yeah keep that in mind um and you know i hope you all are enjoying the podcast and we've gotten good feedback about it which i'm glad um that uh those of you who who do listen are enjoying it um and What's going on with psychedelic information theory? Let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, too. yeah, that's the other question I get yeah. very often. What's going on with psychedelic information theory? And the basic question I get over and over again is, have you gotten any feedback on that from the scientific community or the academic community? And what's going on with that? Or are people going to be running tests to see if psychedelic information theory is accurate? Or are you going to be releasing anything new? And my 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 general answer to those questions is that, The general feedback has been very positive. All of the feedback that I've gotten has been positive. Um, The only negative feedback that I've gotten has tended towards uh, maybe over-focusing too much on a particular cause for geometric hallucinations, like uh, this nonlinear feedback aspect. Which, which is, I think, a valid, valid concern. I, I, it, it is a little limiting in its, in its scope, but for what it's trying to model, um, most of the people who understand the model and understand what I'm trying to model say that it is a very good and it's a very accurate model and it seems to be a, a kind of correct predictor of what's going on in the psychedelic experience. The second thing is that if I want it to be taken seriously by the academic and scientific community, I need to publish something in a peer-reviewed journal. And within Psychedelic Information Theory, the book, there are probably, I would say, seven or eight different papers that could be pulled out of that and put into uh, a journal form. Now, I haven't done that because, like, I, I'm an amateur scientist. I'm not working at an academic institution. I do not have a salary or graduate students helping me put all this stuff together. So it's just me, and I kind of take my time putting this stuff together. And it is a long process getting something published in a peer-reviewed journal, even when you're in academia and you have people advising you and uh, giving you recommendations to certain journals and kind of paving the way for you. When you're cutting it by yourself, it's a little bit harder and it takes a little bit longer. So it may be a few years before I actually get anything published on psychedelic information theory just because um, 
I want to make sure I approach it the right way. I don't want to. I don't want to overextend myself and publish something that's going to get rejected. I want to keep it simple. Start very simple with basic principles, and then once I get the first paper published, use that to expand upon the theory, or you know, test and do further research on the theory, or allow other people to do research on the theory. So it's a very slow process. I'm not really. Um, thinking about doing a revision or a 2.0 for another few years, I want to get something that's a little bit more publishable uh, in, in a scientific journal ready before I do that. And um, the second thing is that I've done a few presentations. I've done maybe five or six presentations on, the, on psychedelic information theory at different conferences. And in academia, what happens when you publish a theory is that you put together a PowerPoint slide and you redo the same presentation over and over and over and over again at all of the different conferences for maybe years, maybe years until you publish your your next piece. And I don't really like going to all the conferences and giving the same performance over and over again. I'm the kind of guy who wants to, you know, switch it up and keep it new just for my own sake, just because I get bored of doing it and get bored of rehashing my own ideas. That's one of the reasons why I'm not presenting at the MAPS conference this year. Uh, You're because not a circus I, didn't dog. I didn't really have anything new to present when they called for papers. I could have presented again on psychedelic information theory, but I already did that in 2010. The video from that is is online. It would have been pretty much the same presentation, maybe a little bit of some other details that didn't get into the first one. But I didn't do it this year because it just didn't seem like I had enough steam to go in and do another presentation. Since I did two last fall at Psychedemia and the Horizons Conference, and those both went really well, by the way. The, now, so psychedelic now more information the theory Coast, is sort of simmering right now. It's simmering, and uh, there will be news on it sometime in the future. But for right now, it's it's just kind of in a in a dormant phase. You can still buy the way. book. You can still buy the book at Amazon.com. You can get the Kindle version. You can get the ebook. Um, you can click through our banner at dosenation.com and we will get a little piece of the sale. Not the, and we will get a little more piece of the sale. You can continue doing shopping at amazon.com and, uh, what you can do is buy a copy of psychedelic information theory and then buy a book by another author that we've had on the show or recommend on our book site. And that way these books get linked together. So when people buy, say, Steve Byer's book on shamanism, they'll see psychedelic information theory in their recommendations list. And, you know, that's a good way to pass things along in an organic way. Yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, what is better than grassroots support? So, mm. so, um, Oh, yeah, we were looking for people going to the MAPS conference this year because yeah. we are going to be live on April 20th on the Saturday that the MAPS conference is going on, coincidentally 420. I don't think it's a coincidence, <laughs> but that's the way that MAPS did it. Uh. And, uh, so we will be live on 420 Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern time as usual, and that will be during the MAPS conference, 2 p.m. Western time. And if there's anybody at the MAPS conference who wants to be a live correspondent for that hour, uh, we're looking for people to call in and just give us general reflections and commentary of what's going on, uh, who's there, what they've seen that's cool, etc. So that'll be something fun. We'll look forward to doing that. Maybe we could get Rakrazam to call in. We're going to have him on the show next week. He's premiering his film, uh, Aya, An Awakening, based on his book. It's a documentary on his journey to South America to um, drink ayahuasca with the maestros. 
And it should be a very interesting interview that we have with him. And he'll be at the MAPS conference, as well as Steve Beyer and uh, Dave Nichols and Dennis McKenna. And I think Hamilton Morris will also be there. Uh, many, many of the guests we've had on our show will all be there, and you can meet them and say hi and uh, tell them you heard them on Dose Nation. That yeah. That would be great, great for us. Make sure you mention that. That's, that's the most important part. Right. And in, uh, if you are in <laughs> Oakland or the Bay Area, you can go to the MAPS conference and stop by without having tickets. There is an open area where they have uh, vendor booths, and authors will be doing signings where you can actually meet people and kind of hang out and get the vibe without having to spend whatever it is the you know hundreds of dollars for the for the day ticket to get into the to the but, conference itself. But uh, yeah, and you know, and of course, if you want to be a live correspondent, let us know as well. Um, and yeah, contact yeah. us at dosenation.com, questions at dosenation.com, and that, or on our Facebook page, and, and we'll see. But we will not be at the MAPS conference, so... No, we will not. I, I, I've i been toying with the idea of going down for the day just to say hi to some people that I haven't seen in a while. Um, but uh, uh, and the closer it gets, the, le- the the less likely it'll be that I'll have. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, it'll there'll be another one. There'll be another one in a few years. Where is uh, Oakland? Where is that? Oakland. It's in Oakland. Okay, yeah. So it's Oakland, in uh, California. I would have to fly. I would have to fly out to go to the Maps conference. So that's not going to be happening. Well, I uh, would have to fly out too. Oh yeah, that's right. Because even yeah. Well, I'm on the East Coast. Uh, I don't know what conferences are out this way, but uh, but uh, you. Well, I just went to two, but uh, the Horizons conference is every year in New York, and that might be a good one. That's the that's the annual East Coast festival. So well, I might be at the Horizons conference then, but. <laughs> If if I can push myself out of the house to go to New York, um, so there were there were a few. Um, oh yeah, the other few news pieces this week of news. That I got some questions. Yeah, on. now and you have to explain a little bit about the brain mapping initiative um, because I'm I'm not very very familiar with it. So, well, I I really don't know what's going on here. But this <laughs> week, uh, Obama announced a one hundred million dollar brain mapping initiative which is supposed to kickstart scientists into mapping connective functions of the brain down to the neural level. And I've, I've read the press that was released on this, and I walked away from it feeling very confused because there, there was a lot of things that left me confused. Um, the, the, the reason he gives for, for putting the money into, into brain mapping is to um, hopefully one day find cures for things like epilepsy, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and untreatable brain diseases, brain diseases that are untreatable at the moment. And they compare it to the Human Genome Mapping Project, project which was very successful. Now, my concerns in this area are one that... Functional brain maps already exist. People have been brain mapping for the last century, and they've been doing a really good job finding localized areas for different functions of brain activity. They're not always totally accurate for everybody, but for the general person, the general patient, you can localize most of the functions in their brain. Um, and the, the, the connectivity between that brain has been very, those brain areas has been very closely studied already, especially in the last mm-hmm. 25, 30 years. Right. And uh, very good models have been built about the way the brain processes information. In fact, the brain has been mapped pretty pretty much so well 
that the idea of mapping the brain to find out more about it has kind of already been played out. There's not much more that we can map, and there's not much more that we can learn from mapping, except maybe for some little detail work in, you know, the visual cortex area or the audio cortex area, or maybe the temporal lobe, or maybe some of the memory structures, uh, which are the deep brain areas, and, and the hardest to map, basically, in a, in a, in a living human being, or the deeper, deeper brain areas. So... I'm not exactly sure what it is he is expecting that we're going to be mapping with $100 million, which is fairly small for a scientific endeavor of this size. Secondly, the idea of using a brain map or better maps to cure problems like Alzheimer's or epilepsy seems disingenuous to me because a better map is not going to help you find a cure for Alzheimer's, which is basically a plaque that affects all neurons. It's not a localized problem. It's a, it's a, it's a protein plaque problem. It's a protein buildup problem that has to be treated with, from a variety of different standpoints that has to do with the health of the neurons, not the way that they're connected together. So mapping isn't going to fix that. The same thing with epilepsy. Epilepsy is a localized problem, usually within a very small cluster of neurons in a person's head that are overexcitable and have these seizures where they, where they just start firing and create a localized problem that can spread. Epilepsy doesn't happen in the same place for all people. It happens in different locations for different people with epilepsy. So there is no one kind of epilepsy that can be mapped and treated. Uh, so that's also very a very disingenuous statement. And the same thing goes for schizophrenia. It doesn't have to do with brain connectivity. It has to do with, with the way that the brain fires in concert, the way the brain coheres, the brain, uh, people with People with schizophrenia can't get coherent gamma focus in their brains, and so they have a lot of splintered thoughts and, and, a, and a hard time holding a coherent picture of reality together. And that's not going to be fixed by better mapping. That has to do with brain health and control. Of so what does better mapping do? Well, nothing, as far as I can tell, unless you want to reverse engineer a brain and make a simulated brain. Like a computer brain. Now that is interesting to me. Now that was the only reason I could think of why he would want, why the government would want a brain map. Because academia and private scientists and private researchers already have pretty good brain maps. The government doesn't have one. Now you can go to maps, brain-maps.org and find Paul Allen's whole brain atlas, which he has been building for the last 10 years. I know people who work on the whole brain atlas project, and they've been mapping mice brains and human brains and all the way down to the genetic expression level. Like, not only do you want to know where the nerve comes from, you want to know the genes that express that nerve and the genes that express every receptor on that nerve. Now, that's way beyond what Obama is talking about in terms of mapping, and Paul Allen is already doing it. And that and that is an open source project. So I don't know what Obama's doing unless he's trying to collect all of the current brain information out there and put it into a government repository that can then become the domain of the government for whatever reason, I don't know why. Now, people could say maybe it's for mind control, maybe it's for building sentient robots, maybe it's for building smarter drones. It's definitely for mind control, man. The reptilians, okay? Now, listen to me, man. I'm going to tell you what's going on. The reptilians, okay? What they're trying to do, they're trying to reverse engineer our brain so they can use it for mind control. So they can mine mono monoatomic gold and go back to their planet. I've heard that theory. In the moon spaceship. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, I don't, there would be a lot better ways to do it than spending a hundred right, million exactly. on a, on a, on a government funded project. But so, this is, it's a really interesting thing. To me, it seems like it's almost a cover story for something else that's going on. Like there's some other project that they're doing that they don't want a whole lot of spotlight on. Like maybe the drone program and to deflect news away from that program they say well let's just announce uh, i don't know a br- we can't announce a mars program because people will want us to actually do something what can we announce a program for where we don't actually have to get any results how about a brain mapping program great and so i don't really yeah, th- yeah but i don't really think it's reptilians by the way i was just making a bad joke um, <laughs> <laughs> i just want to clear that up because because i feel like the- <laughs> well you can trace all decisions in government back to the reptilians eventually Okay, all right. Anyway, moving on. Um, I don't even want to... We need to interview somebody about this subject, because I don't know enough about it, but... Um... No, it's but it's weird. I mean, I think, uh, in general, the reaction from the scientific community has been great. That's, you know, good that the Obama administration is spending money on scientific research, but it's also been sort of like, well, we're not exactly sure what he expects to accomplish with this little money and no... No real goal, no real goal or endpoint. Like, how do you know when you're finished mapping the human brain? The human brain can rewire itself based on experience. How many different variations of that rewiring do you have to map before you have a full understanding of the brain? It's 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 a complicated issue, especially when you consider that that the brain in a living person is undergoing changes all the time. So right. you can't create a static map of something like that. It's coming close to the half hour, and we do have our interview with Daniel Waterman. Um, yeah, who's a really interesting guy. Absolutely. He, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I, I know that you so did as well. practicing um, Ayahuascaro. Yeah, which is fascinating. From Holland. He runs Ayahuasca Sessions, and he has spent time in the uh, Amazon jungle drinking Ayahuasca with maestros. And um, he was struck by a uh, an event in our recent history while drinking ayahuasca that uh, changed his life and basically made him decide to write a book about entheogens, society, and law, trying to untangle the problem that psychedelics have found themselves in in uh, society, especially in the eyes of the law and morality. And the interview is uh, very fascinating, a lot of interesting topics. So, well... All right, then, ladies and gentlemen, here is um, Daniel Waterman and uh, our interview with him on Entheogen Society and Law. So we're here talking with Daniel Waterman. Uh, Daniel, can you tell us where you're calling from today? I'm calling from the Holland. I'm in The Hague, which is a cultural desert, uh, the seat of our government. It would be like uh, Washington, D.C. is for the U.S., a lot of politicians. A lot of politicians. <laughs> I, I think it's even cultural deader culture. than Washington D.C. Right. You've <laughs> got the International Criminal yeah. Court there in the Hague. Yes, yes, and a lot of expats. But um, uh, I don't know what's been happening. But since privatization was introduced as an economic model in the Netherlands, everything has become very, very commercial and streamlined, and there's no subculture left. Yeah, you were, we were talking before we came on, on the air about, uh, you said that, uh, Holland in general is probably not as liberal in terms of drug use and partying as most people would assume from the, uh, the perception of Amsterdam. 
Is that, is that... I think there has been a, a, a cultural shift here, uh, partly because it's a very small country, and uh, since the 1990s and the new new economics, uh, a lot of things that were appreciated from a, from the perspective of a multicultural society, like uh, squatting, uh, drug use, and so on, have now become the new scapegoats. And uh, yeah, there's been quite a significant political shift in attitudes towards drug use, marijuana. Uh, we, we're seeing marijuana nearly being legalized in some parts of the United States, whereas here in Holland, they're they're becoming increasingly restrictive about it. Yeah, that's uh, that's a shame. I mean, uh, we could we could go into much more detail about this, but the uh, reason that we're talking to you is that you've recently written a book, uh, Entheogen Society and Law. Yes. Yeah. And um, can you uh, tell us? Can you tell us why to... you decided to tackle this issue? Uh, quite simply, I was in the Amazon in 2001. I think actually on the night of uh, the 11th of September attacks in New York, and I just had an overwhelming desire to contribute something meaningful to that uh, discussion using the perspective that I had at that moment, which was very deeply influenced by my experiences with ayahuasca. So you were in the Amazon and studying ayahuasca around the time of the September 11th attacks? Uh, I was drinking ayahuasca. I, I, I would have to say that although I'd already been drinking ayahuasca for some time, studying ayahuasca is what happened to me afterwards when I realized I would have to really teach myself to, to read and write uh, to be able to talk about the subject. Uh, what do you mean you needed to teach yourself to read and write? Were you illiterate or is that a metaphor? I, no, I wasn't illiterate, but I was, I, I had, I have no academic background. I was an artist. Uh, I was in fact traveling to just find out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I was tired of being an artist and a designer and producing meaningless works of art. And I wanted to produce something that was more relevant to my experiences with ayahuasca. And I also felt the, my family background played a big role. My grandparents were all murdered during the war. The oh, Second I'm World sorry war. to hear that. Uh, well, that's just the fact. I, I that's mean, right. Uh, I mean, it was World War Two. But it it did impact my life in a in a, in a big way, and I wanted to know uh, why things like that happened. I've always wanted to know. I've always been interested in that. And then ayahuasca came into my life and it uh, just broadened my perspective and I started to think about the psychology of war and injustice and inequality in the world. And with these events that were happening uh, in New York and the, sh the shaman actually came to me and he, he said, what are you guys doing? He was addressing me like a member of a, a tribe or something like that. And I felt that I had a responsibility to answer, but I, I was unable to answer him at that moment, although I felt that I would probably be able to answer him in a couple of years if I just learned how to say the words. Learn how to communicate through writing. Yeah, so yes. what are we doing? <laughs> what is our tribe doing? Uh, so you tried to tackle this, this issue of entheogen society and law, and um, 
Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, who helped you edit this book and uh, and and why? Well, that was a remarkable, remarkable story, really. Uh, 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 about five years ago, when I was already six years into writing this thing, I'd shown it to Benny Shannon. Uh, right, Benny Shannon, who wrote yeah, the Antipodes of the Mind or the Antipodes of the Mind. Um, and at that time, it was just a concept. It was 120 pages, and Benny Shannon said, that's fine, you should publish it like that. But I wasn't satisfied with it. I just got 12 questions that I wanted to answer, and uh, I just sat down and I worked on it and worked on it, and I, I was making enough money to be able to spend a lot of time on it. And about five years ago, uh, I got a call from a prison in the UK uh, from Casey William Hardison. And he said, well, I've read read your book. Can you tell our listeners who Casey William Hardison is? Casey William Hardison, well, I only know him from his time in prison. He's in prison in the UK on drugs charges. He was uh, uh, He conducted his own defense. He was arrested for uh, producing, manufacturing uh, a whole range of psychedelics. I think 2CB, MDMA, uh, LSD. So he's a psychedelic chemist. He's a psychedelic chemist. You can say that again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, when they went into I think so, yes. Uh, And if he wasn't when he went into prison, he is by now because I think he actually graduated and he he did his masters in chemistry while in while in prison or something like that well we can thank but, the uh, we can thank the uh, state of the uh, great britain for providing him with the education that he needs to go forward <laughs> in, indeed i think he's very lucky that he was apprehended in the uk and uh what struck me about this uh, character was that he was uh, he sounded very happy suspiciously happy to be and in prison. as I got to know him, not to be in prison, but just, but just happy not, about life not to have been defeated by that experience. He was in the process of submitting an appeal, and uh, we were talking about taking his court case to the European Court of Human Rights, but then he has to go through by the Supreme Court in the UK, and they've been rejecting his appeal. Anyway, we started, uh, he's, I sent him a copy, the latest copy of my book, and we started working on it, and we nearly can drove you tell each me a other. Little bit, can you tell me a little bit of the logistics about how you work on editing a piece of, uh, a piece like this with somebody who's in prison? Were you communicating over email? Um, if I said that, he would be in a lot of trouble. Oh. So there's things about that that I cannot really talk about. Oh, 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 uh, oh, oh, see now, I was, I'm sorry, I was under the impression this was all done above board, but you, there was a little bit of a uh, James Bond activity going on back and forth. Yes, I mean, I, I there was a moment when I went to visit him and I, I talked to him about uh, doing this through a lawyer, I, because big criminals, they can get interviews and they write their books in prison and apparently they their editors are allowed in but in the case of Casey I, I doubt very much whether they would have let me in so um, but the last six months uh, we've done everything on paper and I have to say that I have nothing but ima- uh, enormous admiration for Casey for the way he worked on it and we did 
really drive each other crazy sometimes because we argued about language is very, very important when trying to communicate about psychedelics. You can very easily confuse people. And, and drug, the language in which we talk about drugs is really so biased that it, it became a real issue between us and we had to argue about every single word that we used. Amazing. And you could, amazing that you could conduct that with him and, him in Great Britain and you in the Netherlands and the barrier of this prison that you had to go back and forth through. Uh, the fact that you were able to produce anything is, seems pretty amazing to me. Also, the fact that his, he can commit very large uh, amounts of literature to memory. I mean, he knows his Bible forwards and backwards. We, we do discuss the Bible a lot, especially in the last chapter. Uh, and uh, he, he, was, he was telling me which books to get, what to read, and so on. And I just thought, Casey, have you got all this in your cell? I mean, his prison cell was full of books, but... There wasn't any space anymore. He had to lend them out to the library. Wow! So we're talking about we're talking about uh, our work uh, refers to literally hundreds and hundreds of books and documents that we are reading and sharing. Now, when I think of Casey in jail with his library of books, I can't help but imagine uh, like somebody like Galileo being confined to his apartment. Uh, for, you know, the later parts of his life, for being like a, an intellectual criminal of sorts. Uh, it almost, it, it's, it's, it's very weird. How, how long is Casey's sentence? He was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and he's done 14, and he will be out this year. Oh, that's amazing. That's yes. really amazing. Well, uh, one issue that has come up between us all the time is our deep enthusiasm for almost every subject that you can think about uh, that can connect to psychedelics and altered states of consciousness and it has been a real struggle to limit ourselves to relevant threads of thought and <laughs> uh, in the last two years I, I proposed to Casey to allow him to edit the book but it was very difficult for him to shift from being a writer to being an editor. Mm -hmm. And that, that, uh, we, I, I didn't know whether to put him on the book as a co-writer or an editor. I think because it was my initiative, I, I insisted on, uh, calling myself author, but he really contributed enormously to this book. Great. So tell us. Oh, okay. Tell us a little bit about Antigen Society and Law. What are some of the 12 questions that you set out to answer? Uh, well, I'd prefer to explain to you that tripartite name, actually, because I think the 12 questions may have got obscured a bit. Oh, so they, but, those, those weren't, those were the driving force, but they became less a part of the text and, and you, you have a better. AC helped me to structure it very clearly. And, uh, a, a couple of years ago, it became apparent that we would have to publish. We wrote about 1200 pages and we're only publishing about 400 right now. So we divided the book into three parts. So let's talk now, a little bit about that. Well, entheogens is a, uh, the, no, the word means something akin to, uh, a substance that generates an experience of the divine within. 
And I felt very strongly that if we would be able to examine and explain that term in a way that is intelligible to people who may not have very much sympathy for the idea of taking a psychedelic drug, that we would have really accomplished something. So uh, our premise was to address the question in a way that would be accessible to people who have strong prejudices about this idea. So to uh, um, so so uh, you were trying to kind of redefine the perception of what it is to take a psychedelic, as yes, opposed to a dangerous derangement that? of the senses. It's more of a process of spiritual discovery or personal discovery. Well, I think we ended up uh, deciding that it's a, uh, something very close to what Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist, defines as man's search for meaning. We can use these tools or technologies, if you prefer, to explore ourselves, and the objective of that would be to find the meaning of our lives. I'd say it's very close to what what I've experienced as well. Okay, so yes. the first part is uh, redefining the perspective of, of antheogens to be tools for accessing the meaning of life, or at least trying to def- trying to search for the meaning of life, search for meaning in life. So what about yes. the society piece of it? Through our examination of that term entheogens, we uh, go into works by Stanislav Grof and a whole load of other people who have been researching these substances and what they do to human consciousness or to our cognitive functions. And that really gives us an idea of how human beings work. Based on that idea, we can say, well, okay, so our society reflects ideas. All our institutions reflect ideas about how human beings uh, behave and about human nature and ideas about human purposes and ends. And psychedelics really shine a very different light on that, one that is much closer to the Buddhist conception of human consciousness. And I thought it would be I- ideal to use our examination of entheogens to cross-examine society and social institutions to understand how they have evolved to reflect certain ideas about human nature. And in the third part of the book... Wait, wait, let's wait. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, How how has... So um, we think of society in terms of, you know, our cultural mores and laws and ethics, but those evolved naturally over time based on, you know, our cultural values and the, the technologies that we use and the language that we use. What are some of the assumptions based in our current society that you're trying to, um, you know, roll over with this examination? Well, what are some of the really assumptions good. that you're trying to pick apart uh, and, and, and you know, make room for antigens here? In Chapter 4, we get to that, and uh, one, of, one of the biggest and most important assumptions is uh, the one encapsulated by the theological concept of original sin. Mm. Human beings are inherently evil or uh, vulnerable or weak or something like that. And, and is, as that, a is, that purely, is that purely a Western social value or would, is that, does that uh, transcend? Well, it's certainly one that's, that's very strongly present in all the Abrahamic traditions. Mm-hmm. But I and surprisingly, it was not abandoned during the Enlightenment 
it became institutionalized in a very different way. There was transformation, but the 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 values were already there, present in the cultural myth of original sin. So let's talk about this concept of original sin a little bit. How did you pick that apart, and and what would you replace that with? If um, you know, we're going to allow entheogens as a as a as a tool for the search for the meaning of our existence, I'd take that all the way back to Stanislav Grof's theories about how human the human psyche develops out of experiences that it has in the womb. I see. Okay. Uh, and and what we've argued is basically that the concept of original sin has been has been misinterpreted, and that there was a uh, knowledge about its true uh, about its correct interpretation that that was probably very familiar to people and predates the Abrahamic traditions and the advent of Judeo-Christian theology this is about uh, this ties into the concept of entheogenic initiation and also to psych- psychedelic psychotherapy and Stanislav Grof's ideas about uh People having birth traumas and the trauma of separation, Otto Rank uh, wrote mm-hmm. about it very eloquently. Uh, that that are uh, have very uh, direct impact on people's behaviour and that need to be dealt with sometimes because um, people are genuinely traumatised by their separation from the mother. And then we went back and looked at the concept of original sin as it was described and defined and explained by various theologians and in the Bible. And when you look at these passages in Genesis, then you can actually see that the moments of separation or alienation from God and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden seem to be metaphors for what actually happens to human beings when they're born. So it's a mythic archetype that we carry with us from the womb that's been been reinterpreted in this metaphor of the Garden of Eden. So it's, even a it's, biological it's, a biological event that's uh, that has a deep impact on human behavior. Um, this is there's a little bit of a of a of cult, the cultural uh, traditions and mythologies seep into our understanding of what happens to us when we take a psychedelic. I know that. A, a great deal of the literature that I read about psychedelics uh, when I was first learning about them had a lot of this discussion about sin and redemption and about transcending suffering and 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 these 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 things that go back to uh, these religious archetypes when you say that we're all suffering from that birth trauma um, uh, I'm not saying that oh, all sorry. of us are by the way. Uh, but I'd say that a great many people may be, and there may be times when that trauma is worse or when when it has a deeper, more significant impact on human life. Uh, for example, at times of war. Right. Uh, and that may tie into to sexual violence and, and the mutilation of, of women during war, which is an increasing problem. So let's move from the society part of it to the law piece of it. What what would you like to say about uh, about that? Uh, I came to the subject of law uh, 
again, as an amateur with very little understanding of what law was about, uh, except that I understood that law could be used, that it was a source of power. Then as I started to examine it, I I found out, well, you know, law is actually very complicated. It's about ethical principles, uh, principles of fairness, about maintaining some kind of security in society and so on. So I, I became very interested in this subject. And then I, by examining these ethical principles, I also came uh, to understand how they reflect, uh, in some cases, religious ideas that have that are unproven. Assumptions that go into law reflect religious ideas that we all take um, on faith, for lack of a better word, which may or may not be accurate or provable. Yes, absolutely. So, so uh, how do you how do you how do you fight that? How do you pick that up? pick that apart and 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 try to work your work your argument into the fold there well ideally you want to pick these uh, uh, legal principles apart to find the ethical principle on, on which they're established and then see how that principle works out now one example is the way that casey uh, has worked on this concept of responsibility of responsible drug use right you see i understand perfectly well that society needs to protect itself and he, and individuals need to be protected from the untoward consequences of of irresponsible drug use so there's a principle of responsibility there and there's and it's very relevant and there it's very simple to work out a response uh, a, a way of approaching drugs drug use as something that is either responsible or irresponsible and uh, legislating accordingly, as we do in the case of, for example, drug, drunk driving. Right. However, underpinning that, uh, you often find these irrational attitudes about drugs, beliefs and assumptions about uh, the mind being something sovereign, and if you take a, a psychedelic, then you're messing with consciousness, and that's an antisocial act in itself to change. So let's your talk about this. Yeah, let's talk about this idea of the mind being sovereign. Um, expand upon that because I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Is does that mean it's it's property of the state or or what are you getting at? Well, that's that a really good question. Is it a, a pro- property of the state or are we able to separate what individuals think and do in the privacy of their own minds from what's going on in society uh, in general. I think one of the problems with the concept of sin is that it's 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 dealing with two separate problems. One is uh, the fact that what people think and what they believe has an impact on how they behave, and mm-hmm. society has to deal with the consequences of that. The second is the question of how do we as a society ensure that people really take responsibility for their actions? Well, I was going to say that the way that we formulate drug policy currently, uh, we're not really giving people the tools that they need to take responsibility for their actions. It's sort of a loaded well, absolutely. game. Absolutely. That's, yes. Uh, I'd say that what happens in society in general is that we do take a lot of responsibility or, f- or freedom away from individuals in ways that 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 limits their ability to behave responsibly responsibly and we don't generally encourage i mean in the case of drug use for example 
ideally you would encourage drug users who are responsible and discourage irresponsible drug use. But where do you draw the line? I'm not going to go into that question because I would, I would like to quote Casey on that and I'd have to open up uh, the book to be able to state it properly, but we do make a very, very simple, concise argument for that. There is a way of separating people's freedom from the state's rights or obligation to interfere. So let me ask a, a, a little bit larger question here. What are you hoping to accomplish with Antheogen Society and Law? What do you want somebody who reads this text to walk away with? Well, firstly, I think uh, the important issue here, which became, which really became much more uh, clear as we went along, was that you cannot simply say, oh, um, psychedelic drugs are all bad and, you know, uh, we as a society are safe if we lock them away. I think they are too relevant to just dismiss the, the whole discussion. The whole discourse evolves around concepts like consciousness and uh, question ethical questions about responsibility and freedom and human rights. And so it's not a, a discussion that we can dismiss. I am not an advocate for entheogens and psychedelics. I just want, with this argument, I want to clarify a few principles that are really important to me and to, I think, probably to a lot of other people about this, these questions of responsibility and how we're dealing, uh, how we're interpreting people's rights and what will happen ultimately if we make it impossible for people to alter their state of consciousness. We're forcing people into a single state of consciousness existence that is severely limited and that will ultimately threaten our existence because the over the level of consciousness of our society at present with all its assumptions and, and premises and its ideas and ideals about human behavior is very, very restricted. And I see that a lot of solutions to the humanitarian crises of today can come from examining consciousness from many different perspectives. Would you say that it's an innate human desire to examine altered states of consciousness, pursue altered states of consciousness? I think it would be risky to say that, but but if you look at the history of drug use or psychoactive substance use, I'd say there are certain that certain people are drawn to that that type of experience, and the more it is available, the more they will be drawn to it. Right. It's something that we're. It's something that certain I, types of people are drawn to for, for sure. And and perhaps people who who for whom the experience may be therapeutic or. Uh, meaningful, yes. Perhaps people who are traumatized. I noticed, I, I'm also practicing ayahuasquero, as you may know. I administer ayahuasca, an entheogen, to people in a controlled setting. I've had very good experiences with that, and I've been doing it for 15 years. But I have noticed that a lot of the people that come to me do have childhood trauma that they're dealing with, as I did. And the trauma is, you think, maybe one of the driving forces in them seeking out 
altered states of consciousness in order to either examine or repair this trauma? Or is that, is that yes. more of an assumption? Yes. That's, that's a, okay. Yes. In exactly the sense that Stanislav Grof describes when he uses the term holotropic uh, as an experience that, uh, that allows us to feel whole again. Yes. There are parts of the human mind or human psyche that need to be integrated for us to be able to function in a healthy way and to respond in a healthy way to an unhealthy society sometimes, yeah. And uh, we are back here on Dose Nation. Uh, that was our interview with Daniel Wooderman. I hope that you guys enjoyed. It was fascinating to do, and I uh, hope that you guys enjoyed it just as much as I did. Yeah, it was. Um, we were kind of getting into a topic there at the end about uh, the, the topic of moving towards wholeness, about people who uh, may be broken or traumatized or suffering some sort of uh, pre-existing trauma, using psychedelics to uh, move past that towards wholeness and find meaning. And uh, I think we could probably do an entire another show on that on that topic alone. The uh, the topic of entheogen society and law very weighty, uh, very difficult to pull apart, and very difficult to change people's attitudes on this. And I think Daniel is doing a great job. The book is not available on Amazon yet. There is a page for the Entheogen Society and Law book, but the publisher has not released it yet. It was supposed to be out on May 19th, but it was delayed. I think it's in a final edit process. Check for that in the next couple weeks, though. It should be there, and we will put a link on the Dose Nation webpage to that when it is ready. And uh, maybe have Daniel back again later. To Yes, yeah, so... Um you can support Dose Nation by visiting dosenation.com and subscribing through iTunes or our RSS feed. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash dosenation or at dosenation on Twitter. You oh, can- wait. Yeah, on Facebook, we uh, only need 46 more likes until we reach 2,000. So I think on. we can get there by next week. Go ahead and like us, and uh, that'll do it for us. And you can also rate or comment on our shows in iTunes. This helps our visibility in the iTunes ranking, and, and it will help us get picked up by other podcast syndicators. You can go to dosenation.com and uh, click through the, uh, the link for Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason by our very own James Kent, founder of Dose Nation. You can buy a copy of the book or ebook and do some shopping on Amazon to give Dose Nation the affiliate commission. You can visit uh, pages for previous shows and find links to all the books we mention here on the show at Amazon.com. You can also click on our link to books in the Dose Nation menu and take a look at the books we've recommended. Click click through Amazon.com and shop as you normally would. This is an easy step for all of you. It helps us out tremendously, and it helps the authors and artists we're trying to promote here on the podcast. And finally, if you like Dose Nation, the best thing you can do is tell a friend, because anyone who listens to iTunes... Anyone who listens to podcasts, these uh, are people who would who would love to have another hour of disembodied people talking over an electronic network to fill the void of human existence. <laughs> Thank really, you. Really? For- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'll fill that void. They'll fill that void somehow, but we can help maybe just a little bit. Well, ladies, oh, and uh, finally, I want to thank uh, the uh, crew at Sepia Radio for syndicating us, and I also want to thank um, Mark. Uh, the producer at Sepia Radio especially, for giving me a nice giggle tonight. And I'll send this to you, James, after we finish up the show. But it's a picture <laughs> of uh, Johnny Depp in um, 
what uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think, was the movie, or Alice in Wonderland. It was one of those, and it said, um, LSD, it's a hell of a drug. <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish I could show you guys the picture, but maybe I'll try to get it on the Facebook later. So, yeah, we'll put it up on the Facebook page. Yeah, I think that, yeah, maybe you guys can get a laugh at it, too. So, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. And, of course, with me, as always, is James Kent, co-host and Have a good week, everybody. Nation. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>